Hello everyone, and welcome to How Is That Legal? The podcast where we break down examples of systemic racial inequity in the law and policy and talk to experts whose stories of injustice will make you ask, how in the world is that legal? I'm your host, Key Tobar. I'm a legal aid attorney, history enthusiast, and chief equity and inclusion officer at Community Legal Services of Philadelphia. Today we're going to talk about the racialized harm of Pennsylvania's child line registry. Before we begin, I need to warn you that this is a potentially triggering discussion. This conversation pertains to the topic of child abuse and may not be appropriate for young children, so please do what you need to take care of yourself while listening. Okay, so I want you to stop whatever you're doing just for a second. Imagine working at a group home for children, and one day, a child develops unexplained bruising. A doctor determines that the bruises would have been caused at some point in the past week, but the exact causes are still unknown. Now, a Department of Human Services caseworker comes out to investigate and indicates that you and every other staff member who had worked at the group home that week might be child abusers. Welcome to Pennsylvania's Child Line Registry. People can be placed on the registry when reports of child abuse or neglect are indicated by a caseworker. There is no right to a hearing before being placed on the registry, and yet being indicated is a status that lasts for life. In order to get off the registry, people must follow a complex appeal process within a short period of time, often with little to no information on how the process works or what the consequences are. But placement on the registry can result in being turned down for employment and volunteer opportunities. And again, unless you're able to appeal the decision and have your name removed from the registry, that status lasts for life. So the story that I shared a few moments ago, it's true. It belongs to one of today's guests, Angela West, who will share how being on the child line registry for 18 years impacted her and her family. My colleague Tracy Johnson, an attorney in CLS's employment unit and youth justice project, also joins us to discuss startling racial disparities within the registry and share some solutions that will prevent parents and other adults from being unfairly labeled child abusers and keep children safe at the same time. Today's episode is a special opportunity to hear directly from someone impacted by racial disparities in the civil system. So let's get into it. Welcome, Tracy Johnson and Angela West to How Is That Legal? We're grateful to have you both on the show to talk about racialized harm of Pennsylvania's child line registry. Tracy, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little about how you came across the child line registry in your work? My name is Tracy Johnson. I'm an attorney at Community Legal Services on our Youth Justice Project and in our employment unit. I began as a caseworker representing on our child line cases. So in case folks don't know, we assist people who uh, need to appeal indicated reports of child abuse that directly affects their employment because they cannot pass a child abuse registry. So um, I came into this work by way of representing um, appellants. Awesome. So, Ms. West, we're going to talk about your experience being on that child line registry um, throughout this conversation. But first, could you introduce yourself also and share a bit about your background and occupation? Hi, my name is Angela West. I'm 58. My occupation is direct support, working with mental health women and men. Awesome. So before we get too much further uh, into this conversation, Tracy, can you just kind of define for us what is the child line registry? For sure. So Pennsylvania's Child Protective Services Law authorizes the Department of Human Services to maintain a statewide database known as the child line registry. 
And what happens is people are placed on the registry when reports of child abuse or neglect are indicated by a caseworker. Um, and there is no right to a hearing before being placed on the registry, potentially for life. Um, and in order to get off of the registry, people must follow a very complex appeal process within a short period of time, right? 90 days to appeal. Yes. And very few people have access to a lawyer that can help them with this, right? Not everyone knows that CLS provides these services. So um, before we get to your next part, because one of the things that you said was indicated, and mm -hmm. I've worked in that unit, so yeah. I know what it means, but can you tell people what that means? When a allegation of child abuse or neglect is made, um, reports are either unfounded, indicated, or founded. When it's indicated, it means that the caseworkers found enough evidence to maintain a report, the Child Protective Services report, and it becomes indicated. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Ms. Weskin, again, thank you for, for joining us and being willing to share your story, which is a powerful story. Um, can you tell us how you found yourself on the registry? Um, I went to apply for another job from where I was working. And it came back, indicated child abuse on the client. And I'm like, huh? And my other co-workers, seven of us was accused of this situation with this child. All seven of us was on here. And that's how I came to find out that I was on the child abuse and it was indicated that I was the perpetrator. So, so I'm just trying to make sure that I understand. So you're at work and then what happened? Yes, in 2004, I was working at a group home, right, with a child with children with cerebral palsy, of, in June, and one of the childs were home and had unexplained bruises. So the doctor examined them, who determined that the bruises would have been caused in the one week period, the date of the examination, and based on the doctor's elevation. Evaluation, DHS indicated every staff member who worked a shift at the group home during the week-long period without identifying any evidence about what happened or who was responsible. In total, seven people and placed them on the registry. So, okay, so an incident happened, and everybody basically who was on that shift took the fall for everybody. it. Everybody. Okay, that's appalling what you <laughs> described. Uh, I understand that you fought to be removed from the registry for 18 years yes. before finally winning your appeal. Was there ever a time uh, throughout the struggle that you stopped and asked yourself, like, how is this legal? Yes. <laughs> kept saying, kept praying, just I'm trying to understand. I would never thought all these years I would still be on there. So during that that eighteen year period, like what had did you like try to do as to like kind of clear your name? Like what was your thought process of like trying? I to kept trying to appeal, writing them, and they kept turning me down. I submitted another appeal in twenty thirteen after I left the you know because I wanted a new job, and then they denied me again. So you're saying like over that period of time, you're going to different places to try to get a job and it's blocking you every yeah, time. Yeah, every time. Trying to get a job. But you didn't stop trying to no. clear your name. No. Tracy, I have the same question for you. What struck you about hearing Miss West's story? And is there any particular feature of the registry that makes you ask, how is that legal? I mean, when I read um, your affidavit um, in the petition for review that was filed, I was shocked. One, right, that there didn't seem to be, there was a lack of an investigation, right? Mm -hmm. That just because a doctor, right, 
surmise that something happened within mm -hmm. a certain window of time. Now, every person who was on that shift was presumed to be, you know, a perpetrator of the alleged abuse. Yeah. And so all seven of you were put on the registry without any substantial evidence linking any individual perpetrator to the alleged incident. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was ridiculous because it just was like, you're just shooting in the dark trying to find who's responsible for something because you couldn't come up with anything else. Right. And that felt, you know, when I, when I read that, that I was like, how, how did they do that? How did any of you get indicated? Like how was someone able to feel that this investigation had substantial enough evidence to identify any one perpetrator? So that was the first thing that I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And then, right for you to then be placed on the registry without a hearing, without mm -hmm. the ability to be heard. You know, how, how is that happening? And I read your affidavit. I know that the executive director first did the appeal for all of you, yes, but they you asked for administrative review mm -hmm. and you are all denied. And we understand because we have clients come in all the time and say, mm -hmm. I asked for administrative review. And then they either never hear back that they were denied or when they do hear back, they don't know that they have to appeal again. Yes. And so it's so easy to slip through the cracks. Yeah. It's also evident that almost everyone who, who goes through administrative review gets denied. The, the process is just so confusing and bureaucratic, the appeals. And then you, you tried again. I know you <laughs> did um, the A1. You yeah. wrote a letter to the secretary That's... and asked them to remove you from the registry. And they denied you again. I mean, yeah. This is someone who's tried multiple times <laughs> to appeal mm -hmm. and was unsuccessful each time she was on her own without mm -hmm. representation. Yeah. Right? Which yep. is not very shocking because if the system is confusing for even us attorneys at okay. times, of course, it's going to be confusing for a lay person who's trying to navigate such a bureaucratic um, system. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm just kind of in awe and admiration that you kept <laughs> fighting it out because so many people would just have given up and, and mm -hmm. would have have to suffer the consequences of giving up. So shout out to you. Um, what you described, Ms. West, was being placed on a registry after a child at your job, you know, developed unexplained bruising. Mm -hmm. But for the little time that I did work in the employment unit that was, and was doing these types of cases, Tracy, can you tell us about other scenarios? Uh, we know that there's other scenarios that a person could be placed on this registry. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about other scenarios that have happened and parents and other adults being placed on the registry? I mean, we have parents who have ex extremely medically needy children who, and if they miss a doctor's appointment, they're placed mm. on a registry. If, if a doctor feels a medicine wasn't administered in the proper way, instead of just saying, you know, providing the support to do it properly, they're placed on the registry because mm. we know that doctors are mandated reporters. And so often when so our- So when you say mandated reporters, what do you mean by that? So there are people who are in certain professions who they are required to report anything that may rise to the level of suspicion uh -huh. to be abuse or neglect. So that's teachers, that's doctors, you know, that's, you know, everyone who comes into contact with the child by you know through, throughout a child's life you know a doctor could report for abuse or neglect if they think if a parent missed a doctor's appointment if they think the parent isn't taking the the situation seriously um we've had parents be placed on the registry for incidents that have happened with their children and they weren't even present but it's like well you're the parent so you're responsible 
right? Like, and even if the parent left the child under the supervision of a trusted adult, they were still placed on a registry. The parent who wasn't the there. The parent who wasn't there. So I have a client who was placed on a registry while she was at work and, you know, mm. her brother was babysitting the child and then, you know, something happened, just an accident. Mm. And she was placed on a registry for not being there, for, for being at work. Mm. The parent Providing was, for her child. The parent was placed on the registry for being at work and the brother was taking care of the child, an incident, an accident an happened, accident happened. Mm -hmm. while the brother was there, but the parent was placed on the registry. Correct. Oh. Okay. Uh, Ms. West, that's, that's just still extremely yeah, wild to me. Um, that it's, that's ask, making me ask myself, how is that legal? And I worked in that area, and I still ask myself, how is this whole system um, legal? Ms. West, once you were placed on the registry, what happened next? placed on the registry and kept getting turned down for different jobs that I really wanted. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't get it because that was blocking me because they're assuming I hurt a child. I passed everything with the interview but couldn't get the job because I'm on that register. And to them, it's looking like I abuse kids mm -hmm. because it's a indicated. Mm -hmm. And a lot of jobs turned down. I wrote a letter. And said, I haven't, my name ain't on the register. You don't see, I never got locked up or anything. So why am I still on this list? Why am I even here? Mm -hmm. And denied again. And lady, my letters, I got them I now. Not enough information. Like, what other information? I don't have any. Because mm -hmm. I, you know, we don't know. Right. So I just, then I just, like, one day got up, went, called down legal aid and said, Oh, I need help because they're not listening to me. You you talked about the, the field that you're in, like wanting to work with people and, mm -hmm. and, and help people. In 2019, the law was changed. Um, it used to be that if you were placed on the registry, you'd be barred from child care jobs for five years. Mm -hmm. But when the law changed, what it did is bar people for life for yeah. what we know now is like it's a de facto life, ban yes. from other jobs. And if we're thinking about Philadelphia, where we have hospitals and colleges and mm -hmm. schools, a lot of people want to work in those fields, but yes. all of those employers do child abuse clearances. And in a city where almost all of the opportunities for low wage workers to mm -hmm. have any type of high growth, you know, substantial pay, mm -hmm. um, being on a registry is locking people out from almost the only substantial, gainful and substantial employment available in, yes. in this region. Yes. And I couldn't go on my grandchildren trips because nowadays when you got to have a, you can't be on that list when you're mm -hmm. doing school can't trips volunteer. and volunteering because people thinking you might hurt somebody because that indicated perpetrator is on there. So I wasn't doing no school trips with my grandkids. None of that. I guess connected to that, the follow-up question is, who has access to see that? To see that you're on the registry? Yes. Well, it's it, it, the jobs do. Okay, so, so it's it, an yeah. employer-based thing. It's an yeah, employer-based thing. When you, when you do the child abuse clearance, the jobs that require it, they can see that. Got or it. if you're trying to volunteer, yes. right? Programs that have to require that. So programs at people's schools or yeah. correct can see yeah. that also. Correct. Which right. you brought up the whole thing. Like the reputational harm is no small matter. It's no small mm -hmm. matter. Yeah. 
I'd now like to talk about the racialized harm of the child uh, line registry. Last season, we discussed the hyper-surveillance and criminalization of black parents generally, right, who actually has the ability and the autonomy to parent. Um, and its connection to the child welfare system. Tracy, can you talk about how this surveillance and criminalization shows up in the child line registry? Yeah, so we worked with um, law students at Temple Law Project, and they were looking at data as it relates to age, race, and um, income levels. And they found some pretty significant findings, which was that black female perpetrators are overrepresented by a two-to-one ratio. Um, And this was really important, right, because when you're looking at the racial dynamics, thinking why is this happening, right? And we'll we'll dive later into the episode about the, the racial and gender ju- justice aspects of that. But they also found that black perpetrators tend to be younger than white perpetrators. And that really stood out to me as someone who represents young people who are placed on the child line registry. And I look forward to talking more about, you know, what I've seen representing young people in that work. I love that you were able to collaborate with uh, law school to kind of figure this out because one of the things that we know, being lawyers who are interested in um, showing the racialized harms within the system, is that it is often very, very difficult to find that data, right? And people want the receipts. You can say it's racist all you want, but unless you can prove that these things um, have a racial disproportionate like uh, reality or outcome, um, those things are kind of swept under the rug, or you know. And so I wanted to take this time to like kind of give you a big up for finding a creative way to figure out how we can get this data because anyone who works in that area when you're working with the child line registry you're going to see just by who your clients are that it is there is a disproportionality um the disparate impact uh here but the the idea to then not just take it as that because the data was not necessarily apparent and overt Mm -hmm. but to try to find creative ways to Mm -hmm. get that data i wanted to make sure that i kind of gave you your flowers um for doing that So, Tracy, what are some of the things you've noticed? You mentioned youth and young people um, and their disproportionate representation. What are some of the things you notice in representing youth? So we get people as young as 14 who may have been placed on the registry based on allegations that were made by other children who they may have been around. Um, And this, as we know, right, if the appeal is not successful, you can be on it for life. So these are teenagers who haven't even started their careers yet, who haven't even graduated. Some people haven't even graduated middle school or high school yet are at risk of being on a registry for life. Mm. And this is so upsetting because we know in the criminal context, right, that we've we've done away with for life implications for young people, right? We've done that in the juvenile justice Mm -hmm. center. It's, you know, unconstitutional to sentence a young person to life without the possibility of parole because the social science and the research shows that young people's brains aren't finished developing, that they have the ability to change, that they have room for growth, right? So we know all of these things and here, in this other segment, in this other area of the law, we still have the potential for for young adults to be placed on the child line registry for life even just to add on to that point uh if if you are a black person or a black parent and i want to say that or black or brown parent or just a, a low-income parent um who knows the history of this country and is familiar with some of the systems in this country 
you know that there's a possibility you take this child to the hospital mm-hmm. that you may kind of end up in the system the mm-hmm. child welfare system mm-hmm. anyhow because of the way that mm-hmm. we know the reporting biases mm-hmm. go into as it relates to hospitals so that gives a person incentive not out of any spite word that wanting to harm their child but actually wanting to stay with their child and protect mm-hmm. their family unit mm-hmm. to not with every little thing want to go to the hospital to know that it can inadvertently have a negative impact and I wanted to to raise that up too can you talk more about this for sure um we know that black families in particular continue to be you know over police and subject to the hyper surveillance of you know agencies that they're often trying to rely on for support Mm -hmm. right so you know we know that you know if a black mother is needs support from dhs and calls on them for you know hey i need help with getting this for my children or getting this for my home then that could lead to involvement by dhs where poverty can be deemed neglect Mm -hmm. and so in the country that continues to struggle with like a you know huge racial economic disparities mm-hmm. we're now seeing black families and particularly black mothers being held responsible for that disparity that they did not create i think there's so much irony connected to this particular system and the other assumptions that society and the law makes especially as it relates to let's say if 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 we know that we're not giving people living wage, that means people are going to have to work multiple jobs sometimes, longer hours, right? And so if I have a 13-year-old um, at the house, mm-hmm. in order to provide mm-hmm. the sustenance as to not mm-hmm. be deemed neglectful, mm-hmm. I have to work. But then I'm also going to be punished mm-hmm. for leaving that 13-year-old mm-hmm. here with the 7-year-old, mm-hmm. which makes no sense. And that goes to the to the question of altogether, how do you think the registry actually affects the children it's supposed to protect we know that if a if a parent is placed on this registry for life right you're basically condemning them to a life of poverty and it's the and often we know that it's the the intergenerational cycle of poverty that could have led them to being in contact with the with dhs and the registry to begin with mm-hmm. and, and to the point of what miss west stated earlier it also it is reducing the ability the communal impact on the child the ability to have communal impact on a child there's certain volunteering like you said you can't do and so you're cutting off part of the safety net as mm-hmm. in, as it relates to community safety net from the child i'd now like to talk about what can be done to fix the registry because on this podcast we don't like to just focus on the problems we do like to try to find some solutions out there so cls recently filed a lawsuit to challenge the registry as unconstitutional and miss west you're a plaintiff in this case what made you decide to come forward with your story it needs to be told 18 years on the registry is a long time. Mm-hmm. Impact on finances, run a better job for my family to provide for them. It just, it took a hardship. I ain't going to lie. So it was just such a hardship that you felt like you had, I had to just. Yeah, I had to speak up and I had to let people know about my story. And it was all seven brown people that they denied that with this little boy. And because of not no hard feelings, he was half white, half black. His mama white. Mm-hmm. And I really think that played a real strong role in this whole situation. 
And I always say, well, where was nobody got charged, no cop, nobody got locked up. So why are we all on this case? We're not, I wasn't accused, indicated. Mm-hmm. That's not a calling, but in their minds, is accused. Mm-hmm. And I've been fighting, and I, and I wasn't giving up on myself. <laughs> what do you hope to accomplish? I'm asking both of you, like, what do you hope to accomplish with the lawsuit? I hope to accomplish that they take a better look and understand things and see and talk to the person that y'all perpetrated, that y'all assuming did something for you. Don't just assume. You never came out. Y'all don't know us, but you're assuming that we're really bad people. We did this to this little boy, and it wasn't like that. So I'm hearing you say just more investigation. Yes, not just that one investigation. You came out and that was it. Mm-hmm. We never seen nobody again. Mm-hmm. Tracy, what about you? I mean, at a bare minimum, give people the right to be heard yes. before you put them on a registry. Allow people to go directly to a hearing mm-hmm. where you have to actually test the evidence mm-hmm. that was used to substantiate the indicated report. Yes. Because we know that when people actually get to that level, I think the number is over 90% of people get the mm. get off the registry. Right. Once they act like once you actually have to put it all out there on mm-hmm. the table and actually require the caseworkers to meet the burden to prove mm-hmm. that, you know, they, that the report should have been indicated in the first place. Right. Almost everyone who gets that level of an opportunity mm-hmm. gets removed. Mm. So what did that what does that tell us? I wanted to actually ask a question and follow up as it relates to that. What is the what is the is it the same burden of proof? And I know this is like a technical legal terms, but I'm saying basically I'm asking you, do you have to prove, do they have to prove that you did it or do you have to prove that you didn't do it um, in, in the yeah. child line case? So when you go to a hearing, DHS has the burden of proving by substantial evidence mm-hmm. that the indicated report should be maintained and the person should remain on the registry because the investigation was proper. Mm-hmm. But you know what's so interesting by the way that the system works and the and as you were saying like how the process of where you were trying to go and reach out to try to get this resolved and function you would think that the person has the burden to prove that they didn't yes. do this because if a person is not a lawyer doesn't understand that system it's really you fighting for your name it's fighting for yourself and it's important to go before a judge to do that yes. to have a judge who's another body to decide that because mm-hmm. what happens during administrative review is you know, that, that's not a judge who's deciding that. What's administrative review? So when the when the person um, gets the appeal, uh, gets the notification in the letter, one of the things they can do is ask for administrative review. And that's basically DHS going to investigate the caseworker's mm-hmm. work and see if it should be substantiated. They almost always say that the caseworkers did a good job. Mm-hmm. So it's important to go to a hearing to have to go before a judge who has to give a decision on this as an objective party as an objective impartial party who's yeah. going to decide miss west how do you think the process could have been improved for people who have been accused of child abuse or neglect and what do you wish had been uh, in place for you i think i would like to talk to the judge or who the people that indicated that i was this person let me explain. Like, I don't know. I never I could tell you right now. I never knew where the bruises came from, from mm-hmm. the young man. He, you know, he bumping things or whatever the case may be. I don't know. But 
I just they just need to do a thorough investigation. You don't just go by that one per them two people that came out and asked questions and you gave them your honest answer and they went from there. You never could tell you just keep appealing but they keep turning you down. Writing letters and it didn't work. You really need representation when you're trying to clear your name from that. Cause doing it yourself is not gonna work. Mm -hmm. Tracy, what are some legislative remedies uh, that could help instill fairness in the registry? Uh, a tiered registry would, would really be helpful. So, like, currently, parents who miss the doctor's appointment are treated the same way as a person mm. who sexually abused a child. And while everyone deserves fair and due process, right, we know that th these things shouldn't be treated given the same weight mm -hmm. um and so there should be a tiered registry where you can have it listed what what's the allegation like you know mm -hmm. based on the level of abuse the level of neglect and i think there should be different waiting periods for this, different allegations mm -hmm. but ultimately thing the the types of allegations should not be treated the same because they have varying levels of severity mm -hmm. when you say waiting periods what do you mean by that you know, like for a missed doctor's appointment, you shouldn't be on there for life. Mm -hmm. um, or mm -hmm. for, you know, corporate pu corporate punishment, I don't think you should be on there for life. Corporate five punishment year, meaning a spanking. Yeah, or, okay. yeah, right. So there could be five-year waiting periods. There could be 10-year waiting periods. Or for more serious ones, for more serious allegations, longer waiting periods. I also just think that neglect should be taken out as a whole. I think we should just focus on abuse and take neglect out as what a whole. What is neglect? Neglect is basically when you, if a parent can't provide certain essentials of life for a child being placed on the registry. I think, and, and, and it's written into the law somewhere that like poverty, you know, we should be clear about not confusing, you know, that, that, that poverty shouldn't be the reason. But we know that by proxy that's what's happening mm -hmm. and so um i just i just think we should focus on abuse and not neglect some people are calling to abolish the child line registry altogether and find other ways to protect children instead what do you think about that i do have an abolitionist vision and i think you know my colleagues at cls does as well we know that before this registry was put into place that communities had the ability to step up for one another. And that continues to be true. One, because, you know, for underrepresented and disenfranchised communities, all we've ever had was one another. Yeah. Right. So like we'll call our neighbor yep. Rose, for milk, for sugar, <laughs> yep. for, you Brain, know, child care yep. help, for anything that we need. Mm -hmm. Right. We know how to step in if things sound like it's getting a little escalated to help go in and de-escalate yes. to avoid further harm or things happening. Communities mm -hmm. know how to show up for each yeah, other. Yeah, they do. And I think that that's true for, for, for this as well. But <laughs> until we get to this um, utopian world, um, <laughs> I mean, and, and before, I also want to say that we also know that in affluent white communities, we don't see this, right? Mm -hmm. We don't see people reporting things at an alarming rate. And mm -hmm. the same things are happening in the same household because family dynamics, while there are cultural things about them, mm -hmm. there are some things that are universal. And so we know that other folks don't, de don't, sh don't deal with the surveillance 
and the the intrusion in the same way. So just the way those other families are given the benefit of the doubt and are given the opportunity to deal with private family matters mm -hmm. the same way these other communities should. I think this just connects to ultimately uh, uh, what we had on our first session with Dorothy Roberts about who actually has the ability to parent um, in this country and uh, why or why not? Like, why do some people have the ability to parent and to make mistakes mm -hmm. um, in this country and, and why others don't? Because I know that every parent, regardless of your race, regardless of your class, has a had a two-year toddler, two-year-old toddler who's crawling around, who's making boo-boos, who, you know, and so yeah. to think, if you have to think, if you're not one of those people in, in who's in a neighborhood or who may be in a subgroup that is hyper-surveilled, to have to think about every one of those mistakes um, that that may have happened to your child and think about that punishment that you know sometimes is disproportionate as it relates to that they may be fettered from that I think that anyone who is reasonable can understand that that even if you don't believe that the child line registry should be abolished that mm -hmm. there's something that must be done to, to remedy this situation um Tracy and I think what's also true is right there's no empirical evidence that this child line registry keeps children more safe but we do have evidence that it causes harm to family bonds and sustainability mm -hmm. and i think right like speaking of dorothy Rapp, she talks about the psychological damage this does she talks about how it breaks family bonds she talks about you know all of those issues we have evidence that shows how it harms families but yeah there's no empirical evidence saying that this keeps children safer and i think that's an important statement to make and i guess on the end i'll i'll ask you miss west to to end this out if there is anything that you kind of would like to say as it relates not only just to your case but as it relates to this system that you you would want to put out there before we close out don't give up keep fighting when you know you ain't doing anything keep fighting for yourself to clear your name and that's my fun. Keep fighting. Don't give up. I think that's a powerful one to end out on. So thank you both so much for joining us today. It's been eye-opening and shocking altogether. <laughs> uh, but thank you for joining. You know, I actually care a lot about keeping children safe and well. But it sure seems like the child line registry is causing much more harm than good. Can we really say we're protecting children when we keep their families trapped in poverty or prevent their parents from accessing family-sustaining jobs without due process? And I don't think we're promoting children's well-being when we bar caring adults from volunteering at schools and other community activities, all without the right to a hearing. How in the world is this legal? Well, hopefully it won't be for much longer with CLS's litigation pending. If you want to ask questions about the show or let us know what you think, please email us at podcast at clsphila.org. Also, while Community Legal Services of Philadelphia offers free legal assistance on a range of civil legal issues, we are not a criminal defense firm. So if you live in Philadelphia and are looking for non-criminal legal help, please visit us at clsphila.org. We cannot respond to questions about legal issues via email. Season 2 of How Is That Legal is produced by Rohome Productions. Jake Nussbaum is our producer and editor. Executive producers are Alex Lewis and John Myers. Music provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Kaylin Nagel, Zakia Hall, and Farwa Zaidi. I'm your host, Kito Bar. Mm -hmm.